And if I'm not using the talents and abilities that I was given to their maximum, then I'm not using them properly for the reason that I was put here on this earth. I'm David Oti, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. What does it mean to you to maximize your abilities and talents? Do you pursue that even when it takes you in surprising directions and may lead you into non-traditional roles? Listen to this conversation I had with author and speaker Jill Teigen, who was an engineer when women in that role were a novelty. What might her insights mean for you as well? Welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Oti, and on this program, as I'm sure you're aware, we have a mix of content and conversations. And today, I'm going to have a conversation with someone I'm very excited to converse with, author, national speaker, and electrical engineer, Jill Teigen. Jill? Such a pleasure to be here with you today, David. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. That does seem like a somewhat incongruous combination, doesn't it? National well, speaker and electrical engineer. Tell us, uh, tell us a bit about the, uh, the story behind that. Well, the story, I got introduced that way at the Susan B. Anthony Museum in Rochester, New York. And everyone in the audience, which was primarily, let's call them mature women, started laughing and as I was walking out with all of my stuff at the end, the woman who had organized it, her name was Annie. And I said to Annie, why did they laugh? And she said, because they don't see the author and the national speaker being part and congruent with the electrical engineer part. And, and that really helped me to understand why people were laughing there. First of all, they're very uncomfortable with the fact that I'm an electrical engineer many of them. And then they don't see how that goes together. And for me, it's just been a, a natural progression. So this was an audience of women who were uncomfortable with you being an engineer? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Because I would have suspected it might be more a matter of male engineers not being comfortable with you being an engineer. Did that happen also? That Oh, absolutely. I mean, that has happened certainly over the course of my now 45-year career, there have been many instances where anybody who was in the audience, what, whatever that audience was, was uncomfortable. And I try very hard to make them comfortable with um, actually fitting with the podcast theme through story. I try to do that with individuals and to bring them in to wherever I am through story. Through story. Oh, I love that connection. Can you give me an example of that? Well, one of the things, one of the talks that I give, and I give quite actually a number of different talks, is called How My Story Became Her Story. Mm. And what I do is bring people in from my upbringing in Hampton, Virginia, the setting of NASA's Langley Research Center, which is the setting 
for the movie Hidden Figures. That's right. Which is where my dad worked. Oh, okay. So he worked. I have a with side those. note on that, which I'll circle back to later. But you go ahead. So he worked with the women who are featured in the movie Hidden Figures. And so what I try to do is I try to make myself approachable, human through story and how I ended up at the University of Virginia, my experiences there, and then little by little, how basically, and it happens in all of our lives, how one thing leads to another, leads to another, even though when you started the first thing, you actually had no plan, (laughs) no idea that this was how the whole process was going to progress. And, And I had no idea. And that's a theme that comes up over and over in my conversations with people on this program. It's even a theme of my own life. I had a career of about 25 years or so in broadcast engineering. I don't have a degree in engineering. I have a degree in physics and in radio, television, film, and a master's in broadcasting management. But while I was in graduate school pursuing that master's, the job, the best paying job that was available to me with the skills that I had was actually uh, as an engineer at a TV station that was just starting up. Because I had my first class FCC license and I knew how to crimp a BNC connector on a piece of coaxial cable and they put me right to work. And I had no idea where that was going to take me. It eventually took me into a training program on a new technology that was being rolled out industry-wide. And from there, I made the leap from engineering into training and speaking. And one one never knows, but, but every experience you have leads you to, to where you are. And you must have had some interesting experiences to lead you to where you are now. Right. And, and you can see them in retrospect. You right. can see how a particular experience led to the next step, led to the next step, led to the next step. But you have, or I didn't for sure, have any idea that, for example, that for me, doing an essay contest on great women in engineering and science as an outreach program for sixth graders in Colorado and Wyoming would lead me now to effectively 12 books and more in process. I mean, it, it was just it was just an outreach program for kids to write essays on great women in engineering and science so we could expose boys and girls to the thought of a science, technology, engineering, or math, a STEM career. It wasn't meant to be the start of a basically a new fork in the path of my life. Hmm. <laughs> and you can connect the dots um, looking back, right, in hindsight, that you couldn't connect looking forward. Absolutely. I absolutely hindsight in retrospect. And of course, at this point, uh, I, I have no idea either where I'm going. <laughs> I have some ideas. But, and I'm doing, I mean, I'm working very hard and I'm doing all kinds of things, but I'm also now at a point in my life where I just basically say, huh, I wonder what's going to happen. And let's just watch and see how it unfolds instead of being so concerned and so controlling and so frantic. I mean, at one point I was frantic you know, about what was going to happen instead, just watching it unfold, seeing how it unfolds and going, wow, that's really interesting how that's happening. 
No point being frantic about it. Just watch it unfold. <laughs> that's that's some excellent life advice. My my side note on hidden figures is that at the time that movie came out, and this is the movie about the uh, black women uh, mathematicians and engineers who were so instrumental in the early days of the of the NASA space space program, and whose uh, contributions went largely unnoticed and unremarked until the movie, and I guess before that, the book that it was based on came out. When that movie came out, my daughter, my oldest daughter, was in the Coast Guard, or maybe had just left the Coast Guard, but the Coast Guard had put her and her husband in that area, in the Hampton, Virginia area, and we were visiting, and we went to see that movie at a theater that was uh, basically right across the highway from Langley Air Force Base. Oh wow! And it was it was such a thrill to be to feel like I was in that very nearly that location where that interesting bit of history was made. Um, and of course, the perk of being there with my daughter, who has a a, a bachelor of science in marine and environmental uh, science from the Coast Guard Academy, uh, made it special to me as well. <laughs> of course. So my, my only beef with the movie, well, there were a couple beefs with the movie, but my primary beef with the movie is that it's filled in Piedmont, Georgia, as a, uh, to a tidewater community. A tidewater community is as flat as flat can be, and there's water everywhere, but they needed to be in, well, they needed to be in Georgia for all kinds of reasons, including the tax breaks that they got there. And then oh. the these, that they needed um, to simulate how NASA looked, which when it was actually NACA in 1943, when the Octavia Spencer character, whose name is Dorothy Vaughn, started work there. So, so thank you for filling in that additional backstory for us. I, I would, it does not surprise me that you would want to keep us uh, uh, viewing that through uh, the lens of some historical accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also a, a place that they alleged was Hampton High School, which uh, wasn't even close. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who was in broadcasting and has been around a few movie sets, I do know that the industry does have to take liberties from time to time. Um, well, of course. I mean, the, historical they, sites. They filmed it, you know, 60 years later after what happened happened. So how could it be the, the facilities be historically correct? Of course, of course. Um, so I, another side note, I did live in Montana for 11 years, and there is a movie that has just come out that has an Academy Award nom nomination that's set in 1920s Montana and was filmed, as I understand it, in New Zealand. And, uh, <laughs> as someone who's been in Montana, I recognize that it's not Montana, but I will say this. They did find some scenery that is a decent stand-in for scenery I've seen in Montana. So oh, yeah. Montana is beautiful. Oh, yes. You just have to film things where you can sometimes. Right. And you exactly. have to write things where you can sometimes. Tell me the most interesting story about where or when you've written one of your dozen books. Oh, my goodness. Actually, one of the most interesting stories. I, I didn't say this in this interview so far, but one of the ways that I learned to write was to write expert witness testimony. Expert witness testimony, okay. Which is, which is what I did in my career. And I remember writing testimony on a plane from Regina, Saskatchewan to Denver. At least I think that's what it was. I mean, I know I was coming from Regina, 
but I don't remember if I ended up in someplace else as an intermediate point and then flew into Denver. It was a very early morning flight, like 6.30 in the morning. And I remember writing my testimony on the plane. And then I typed it up. This was back in the day, you know, when you typed it up and sent it to my client. And I don't think we changed a word. <laughs> and and, and I mean, that, that, that was, it's, it's, when that happens, I mean, that kind of writing, and, and it does actually happen, it's just a gift from God that it comes in, it comes through me, it comes into the paper, and then it stays. And I do three monthly, well, two monthly newsletters and one monthly column. And generally, the idea for the column comes to me while I'm on the treadmill. Ah, okay, okay. It's interesting that you, you shared that story because I wrote one complete chapter of my first book on a plane. I had a, a probably a bit longer flight than what you had, because as I recall, it was from Boston to Seattle. I was flying home to <clears throat> Great Falls, Montana. And you don't fly to Great Falls, Montana without going through, let's see, uh, Seattle, Salt Lake City, or Denver. So I had to fly completely past Montana to Seattle right, and then double exactly. back. But it did give me a lot of time to write, and I got an right. entire chapter done. <laughs> exactly. Um, your books, um, give me a, a sampling of what they're about. Well, the, the, first few, the first book really was Keys to Engineering Success, and that's an introduction to engineering handbook published for freshmen in college. Okay. And... The large majority of books after that are focused on writing women into history. So the Setting the Record Straight books were all about women, women's rights, and women in non-traditional professions. And then Her Story, A Timeline of the Women Who Changed America, is more than 850 women in U.S. history from 1587 through 2011. Wow. That Hollywood must take Hearst. time to research. Oh, yeah. Ton, oh, I, I love to research. Um, <laughs> tons and tons of hours that went into research. Hollywood, her story, and illustrated history of women and the movies. More than 1,200 women in the film industry from 1893 through the present. And then in the interim, I'm also the series editor for the Springer Women in Engineering and Science series, Springer is a Swiss publisher, primarily oriented to the academic market. I wrote the foundational volume for that series, which is a history of women in engineering. And then I recruit volume editors. I have a second book, A History of Women in Science. The third book is the one I'm co-volume editor on, and that's Women in Infrastructure. And then my that infrastructure book just came out at the end of February, and I have a book coming out May 3rd, 2022, called Over, Under, Around, and Through, How Hall of Famers Surmount Obstacles, and it's 50 stories of how women in the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame and other halls of fame around the U.S. and the world faced the obstacles in their lives and overcame any number of really pretty horrendous issues to become successful. That sounds fascinating. Well, they all sound fascinating, and they sound 
meticulously well researched. Now, you wouldn't, I don't, I don't think I have any reason to know this. I don't think I've mentioned it to you before, but I have a sister who is a scientist. She's a, a cell biologist uh, who did most of her work in the physiology department at the uh, University, of Cha uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's been a guest on the show. Um, she's, of course, a scientist I admire greatly. Uh, she, I, I don't think she would have made it into your book. Uh, she did have a, a noteworthy scientific accomplishment in identifying a new protein that turns out to be instrumental in, in determining the, uh, the structure of a cell. Um, and speaking of uh, your, your book on infrastructure, you have a chapter in that that I believe was contributed by our mutual friend Beth Boaz, who has also been on this program. Yes, and as I learned last week, I don't call her chapter the damn chapter. I call it the chapter on dams. <laughs> <laughs> she loves to tell people that she was a damn engineer. And, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I like uh, her story. And, and this was something I was thinking of a moment ago when you talked about people not being comfortable with you and your role as an engineer. I do like Beth's story about the time she went to a conference and one of the men participating there just of course, expected she was there to get his coffee. Oh, well, I'll say you are reminding me way, way back early in my career when I worked for Duke Power Company, which is now called Duke Energy in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was trained to be a member of their speakers bureau. And I showed up at this church to give a talk on nuclear power. And I walked in to the registration table and I said, hi, I'm Jill. I'm here from Duke Power. I'm your speaker today. And this woman who was seated, seated behind the table said to me, I thought Duke was sending an engineer. Oh. <laughs> and what? And I, and I said, they that? did. They did. <laughs> <laughs> and that, um, I imagine, if that was early in your career, uh, I imagine that did put you in a distinct minority. Well, I went to the University of Virginia the third year that women were admitted. I was in the first class that the number of women wasn't capped. I'm one of the first 10 women to graduate in engineering from the University of Virginia, and I have two brothers. I was ready for it. This is, it's not, it's not something that was brand new. It wasn't something that I'd never experienced before. In fact, I experienced it throughout my career. I'm still experiencing it. I, I don't doubt that for a moment. I don't doubt that for a moment. Um, and uh, I, I, I almost feel like apologizing on behalf of my gender. <laughs> well, it's not just your gender. It's everybody. I mean, some of the women are worse than the men. Really? Yes. Well, there was the, the, the woman who sat there and said, I thought they were sending an exactly. engineer. Exactly. <laughs> I thought they were sending an engineer. And then, you know, not you know, but there are so many people, many, many of them women who will say to me, Oh, you're so smart. And really, the answer is my talents and abilities are just in different areas than yours. That doesn't make me smarter. Yeah, I might be better in math than, sure. than you are, but that doesn't make me better or different. Or, or I mean, it makes me different, but just make, doesn't make me better. It just means my talents and abilities are in a different area. And if I'm not using the talents and abilities that I was given to their maximum, then I'm not using them properly for the reason that I was put here on this earth. That's 
a very enlightening and interesting perspective that you've got to find where your talents and abilities are and, and use them. Yes. And all of us have talents and abilities. And yes, they're different. And for the women that I, I wrote about in Over, Under, Around, and Through, I mean, one of them is my friend, Cleo Parker Robinson, who has the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble. Dance Ensemble, yes. In Denver, right, right here Colorado. in Colorado. Yes. And I mean, Cleo and I couldn't be more different in terms of what our talents and abilities are. But hopefully I'm maximizing mine and I believe she is absolutely maximizing her talents and abilities. And and that's what makes the world better. And that's what we were put here to do, not to compare ourselves with each other, but to maximize and using our own talents and abilities. So let's come back to that. Um, as far as talents and abilities, you obviously have an ability for writing and speaking as well as for doing engineering. And you said that you were, um, you, you told the story of being in your company's speakers bureau. Yes. Yes. Did it uh, tell me about the unfolding of discovering your your talent as a speaker and communicator in addition to being an engineer? Well, I was active in the I guess the Society of Women Engineers by that point in time, and I was also working with a group I think called Women in Energy at Duke Power Company, and I was tutoring fourth grade math. And my second level manager, not my immediate manager, but the second level manager noted that I had speaking ability. And he recommended that I apply for and take this Speakers Bureau training that Duke Power offered after the Three Mile Island accident in 1979. Duke Power expanded its Speakers Bureau and I took this two and a half days of training which was one of the most valuable and meaningful and worthwhile trainings that I've ever had. And it was the first time I was ever on video and oh, I was so nervous and I just hated it. But what, when, when Bill suggested that I go to this training, I just absolutely said yes immediately. When I was in college, my statics professor, who was also my research advisor at the University of Virginia at the time, you had to do an undergraduate thesis in order to graduate. And he hired me to be the research assistant for one of his PhD students. And after I did the research that I was doing for my undergraduate thesis as um, John's assistant, then uh, Mr. Allaire said to me, you're going to join the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. My topic was the mechanical performance of polyglycolic acid sutures. So anybody that has had dissolvable sutures, the brand, one of the brand names is Vicryl. If you've had surgery, you've had the suture in you now. But at the time it was brand new and there, there needed to be a lot of testing to get people comfortable with it. He said, you're going to join the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. You're going to submit an abstract and then if they accept, you're going to compete in the student regional conference, which I did all of the above. And so there were 10 papers accepted, nine boys and me. And I was last. And the ninth boy 
was from Clemson University. I was from the University of Virginia. And he made some incredibly nasty and derogatory statements at the beginning of his presentation about the University of Virginia intentionally to derail me. And so when I got up to speak, the last speaker of the day, I had to defend my alma mater to start with. And so I am gripping the the podium as hard as I can because my knees are shaking so badly that I don't think I'm going to actually be able to remain upright. And so when I was offered this opportunity to do the Speakers Bureau training, I said, yes, yes, yes. I never want to be that nervous again. Never want to be that nervous again. So that was the change that came about from that story. Now, you did leave me wondering what you said to defend your alma mater. I don't remember. put this student in his place. (laughs) I I don't remember what I said. I have no idea. Um, You know, that Clemson always killed the University of Virginia in football and most sports. But I... I I know there's a rivalry there. Yeah, yeah, there there was an intense rivalry, but still what he said was inappropriate. And, um, and, and, oh, by the way, I won second place. I didn't win first place. I won second place. And as I'm walking to the stage that night to get my award, which is a fancy dinner with the spouses who are primarily wives of the, the engineers in attendance as well. One of the women says to me, as I'm walking to the stage, you go, honey. Of course. (laughs) That was 1976. You know, there's some things you remember and there's some things you forget, but (laughs) we'll always remember. I'm sure you will. It's well well remembered and well told. Uh, You do have a skill at telling a story. And so when you had the opportunity to get that training, you said you never wanted to be that nervous in front of an audience again. Never. Mm. Never. So what advice then would you give to someone who is a STEM professional who uh, is called upon to give a speech or presentation and finds that taking them out of their comfort zone? Practice, 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 uh, and do it in front of a mirror and know your material. I'm not saying memorize it because I've seen people just freeze in the middle of their presentations because they can't remember it. But get so comfortable with material. Remember, you are the expert. And people are looking to you as the expert on your topic. But practice and practice and practice. And there is one other thing. There are many other things you can do. But one that's really practical is what I did to prepare as an expert witness. And that was I wrote down every question that I thought I could be asked. By the way, I was never right. But... (laughs) I wrote down every question that I thought someone might ask me, and then I prepared the answer. Mm, and what did that do for you? It, it, it built my confidence because now I knew not only the, the presentation or my testimony or whatever, but all of the questions that I thought I could be asked with the answers so that when I was asked that and then And then I was in Wyoming with someone whose name I do remember, but I will not use it, who said to me, well, Ms. Tijan, you just told me that this option is the one that provides the most safe, economic, and reliable power. 
Are you telling me that the other options aren't safe? <laughs> and what did you say to that? I don't remember. Just... I, I don't remember. I just went, oh, for God's sakes. You know, you are just being a royal pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> because I had been trained to say that whatever we were doing, and I mean, I can say this now. Why is the sky blue? The sky is blue so that we, your utility, can provide you with safe, economic, and reliable power. Of course. <laughs> I mean, at, at the end of 16 hours of training, I could answer any question that way. And for this gentleman to say to me, you know, the other ones aren't safe. Oh, come on. Deputy Commissioner. He was showing sake. a very good analytical ability himself, was he? Mm. No, he was he was being intentionally provocative. Oh, goodness. Um, see how I would respond. See how you would respond. So practice, practice, practice. Now, you mentioned practicing in front of a mirror. I'm going to throw something out here that is just a tease. And um, if uh, I'll put, uh, when this program comes out, I'll put a link in the program notes. Um, I've been uh, fortunate to be part of a team, a group of people advising a team of developers on an artificial intelligence-based tool for practicing your speech and getting feedback on it. It combines uh, AI-based analytics with access to a human coach as well. Oh, and wow. I'm very excited to see how this is developing. You can record a speech and it will immediately give you a transcript and um, uh, analytics such as your use of fillers, your, your pacing and variations in pacing over time. Um, I'll have to show you this separately because I think you're going to be really fascinated by it. So Well, and, a... and you are reminding me that I'm still thinking 45 years ago, and now almost anybody could practice. They could get their own Zoom. They could record themselves on their phone. They could record sure. so they can see it. You know, but sometimes that's a little intimidating. To see your, this, the first time you see yourself on video is pretty hard. Oh, now, it is. Everybody is now so used to Zoom because of the pandemic or Teams or whatever technology they're using that they're used to seeing themselves. But I mean, I remember the first time going, oh my God, what am I doing with my mouth? What am I doing with my hands? Why am I standing that way? Why do I look like that? And, and then you just get more comfortable. Oh, and, and then you, 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 the way your voice sounds. You know, your voice sounds different on video than what you hear through your ears. And so all of those things can be very um, upsetting or surprising or whatever those combination of words are if you're not used to it. Very dismaying. Yes. Um, and, and I've gotten used to it. As we record this, um, for anyone who may be interested, it is two years almost to the day since the country shut down um, due to the due to the COVID pandemic. And uh, yes, I have uh, pretty well worn out my seat just about sitting here in front of Zoom for the last two years. <laughs> it was something I had used occasionally before that to join a meeting of a virtual community I was part of, and I've been using it almost constantly ever since. Uh, so I've certainly gotten used to how I look, how this space looks, what I sound like. It, it does take some getting used to, though, doesn't it? It, it really does. And, it, and if you're not used to seeing yourself, which maybe everyone is now, that uh, just to get that level of comfort with how you come across, 
how you use your hands, how your mouth is, what you sound like, all of those things, so that that's another confidence builder. That's right. Another confidence builder and not a not something that will undermine your confidence. Right. Mm. Right. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. I'm looking at the time and thinking that perhaps we should wrap this up unless we just want to keep going and make two episodes out of it. But that would be uh, an abuse of your time. Um, you, you've already given us the, the advice, practice, practice, practice. Is there a, any other closing thought that you'd like to leave with us? Or do you just want to go straight to how people can follow up with you? I think I'll just go straight to how people can follow up with me. I think the best way is just to, to connect with me through LinkedIn. There are, there are many other ways to reach me, but that's probably the, the best and most effective at this point. People can then reference that they heard it on the podcast, and that will give me an idea of how to respond. Sure, sure. And when they're looking for you uh, by name, Jill Tejan, of course, that will go into the program notes. But for those who are listening and not seeing me put it on the screen, why don't you spell your last name for us? And not everybody gets the first name either. It's Jill, like Jack and Jill, which I've actually said on the stand, and people have just laughed. And my last name is Tejan. That's T as in Tom, I, E as in Edward, T as in Tom, J, E as in Edward, N as in Nancy. Thank you for that, uh, and, and for the phonetic spelling of it as well. <laughs> um, and, and I'm David Odie, and I've been so pleased to have Till... Uh, till <laughs> Let's try that again. Jill Tejan uh, as the uh, interview guest on my program today, talking about communication and engineering and how those things all go together, and sometimes in surprising ways. You can reach out to me by going to the home page for this program, which you can reach just by going to storyandscience.com. And uh, if you'll explore that page, you'll find ways to connect with me as well. And as always, thank you for being part of the Story and Science community. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening.